Hello everyone, my name is Brooklyn Flick and I'm the president for Pace Sustainability Initiative at Pace University's New York City campus. And I'm Gabrielle Robb, the committee coordinator of Pace Sustainability Initiative. Welcome to our new podcast, CAMS Climate Corner, a space aimed to channel environmental discourse in a positive and constructive way. We are so excited to share the space with you all today. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, feel free to message us on any of our social medias, which we will include in the description. For those of you wondering how the name of the podcast came to be, we have an explanation for it. Cameron Becker, who is the former president of PSI and a dear friend, came up with the idea to create a podcast for PSI at the beginning of the semester. Unfortunately, Cam had to return home for the rest of the semester due to personal reasons, and with her blessing, we are taking on the podcast for her. Because of this, we wanted to commemorate all the hard work she's put into not only PSI, but to the Environmental Studies Department and Pace University. Thus, Cam's Climate Corner was born. We love you, Cam, and we hope that this podcast turns into everything you dreamed it would. For our first episode, we had the incredible honor of interviewing Barbara Alexander. For those of our listeners who do not know, Barbara not only was involved in the creation of the original Earth Day, but was also involved in the Clean Air Act, as well as many other notable accomplishments. With Earth Day being this week, we couldn't think of a better time to release this episode. We had a wonderful time talking with Barbara, and we hope you enjoy listening to our talk. Okay. Hi, Barbara. My name is Gabrielle Robb, the Committee Coordinator for Pace Sustainability Initiative. And I'm Brooklyn Flick, the president of Pace University's Sustainability Initiative, a club and activist group aimed at bringing students together to help our world. It's so nice to formally meet you. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. For our listeners, today we are joined by the remarkable Barbara Alexander, long-term activist and one of the original founders of the Earth Day Movement. Barbara, would you mind giving our listeners a brief introduction about yourself and about your career in environmentalism? Thank you very much, and I'm honored to be speaking with all of you. Uh, my uh, work on in Earth Day uh, was actually an accident. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. Um, in the uh, late 60s, and uh, working as a uh, office assistant to a wonderful woman at the Conservation Foundation. Um, and at that time, the senators um, and various other folks thought it would be a good idea to highlight the young people and college-age people and community groups uh, to focus on the need to clean up uh, pollution and support more environmental laws. So I was in the right place at the right time, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. We had a small office and a small amount of money, and uh, what I love telling the story uh, to folks like yourself is that we had no computers, we had no cell phones, we had no internet, uh, we communicated with rotary dial telephones, we made uh, databases of what was happening for Earth Day on three by five cards, uh, and we mimeographed our newsletters and mailed them out. Oh wow! So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> honestly, also, that's amazing. <laughs> it really is amazing, and uh, one of the uh, wonderful things that happened at that time, um, again, was a function of the. Um, uh, technology at the time, national news, TV, radio, and national press were extremely important 
in uh, promoting information of the kind we want it promoted, which is we're going to have an Earth Day. Mm -hmm. We want to stimulate activities all across the United States. Um, and the press cooperated with that. And we had intense public attention uh, from all kinds of press on what we were trying to do. And then we provided information about what we were gathering for events on that day mm -hmm. to the press, who then replicated that on a national and regional and local basis. So uh, it, was a, a, it was a very interesting time. We were uh, in the throes of the anti-war movement as well with the Vietnam War. And uh, we had, in 1968, uh, a national series of traumas um, that uh, sparked uh, a lot of uh, anger and angst um, about uh, the need for what was happening in our inner cities, um, the effects of racism that permeated our society, mm -hmm. the anti-war movement, and the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. So it was pretty wild. Um, a lot of events were demonstrations, but most of them literally were in college classrooms or in a, in a, a local community uh, college or local garden clubs, the League of Women Voters, um, and uh, all kinds of organizations help make uh, millions and millions of people participated in the first Earth Day. So. Wow. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And yeah, there's a lot of obviously major events that surround that creation like you were talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see how there's such an intersectional, like, work that's being done with, you know, the Black, like, Black Lives Matter movement and women's rights movements that go, that can also be dated back to, like, when you were working as well. Just goes to show you our work is never done. Of course. And uh, <laughs> the agenda remains uh, pretty significant uh, to achieve a lot of the... Uh, very high values that we all uh, think we should uh, have as a reflection uh, of our, our country's mission and history. So it, it's, a, it's a constant struggle. Uh, uh, but let me just say that at that time um, in the 1970s, we had a it was very obvious what the problem was, mm -hmm. clean air, clean water, those things did not exist then. We had fires in industrial rivers flowing through Cleveland, Ohio. We had um, uh, uh, air pollution uh, that is much, much worse than anything you see today. Um, we had um, no uh, clean water program at the national level. Um, oh, wow. And as a result of Earth Day, we got a lot of very important legislation that actually had a big impact on cleaning up our air and water. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, 1970 and 72. So at that time, it was very obvious what needed to be done, and there was a growing national consensus we needed to do it. Um, and regulatory um, 
regulatory standards and federal um, mandates were the basis for having the success we did as a result of that program. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's incredible. So I know that I've read before at another interview that you did that you kind of explained um, the dynamics of gender roles during this time and how you liked that during this, it kind of was what could you provide for the movement rather than who you were. Um, Could you expand on that for us? Well, you know, at that time, the whole women's rights movement was becoming more and more um, uh, advertised um, as as an important change agent um, at that time. Um, So we had Congress people, Congress women in uh, the U.S. Congress. We had uh, national uh, folks talking about mm-hmm. the need for equal pay, for equal work, um, and for the expansion of the uh, professional women in uh, decision-making authority. So um, I, I'm quite sure uh, I was uh, I took advantage of that um, desire to showcase the need and I had a lot of publicity given to me simply because I was a young woman working on this national project that uh, uh, typically would have been implemented uh, by uh, male authority figures. Uh, And uh, so you can go back to the press of that day, and I had interviews from Mademoiselle magazine (laughs) writing about this wonderful opportunity for young women to get involved in environmental protection and featuring me and some others uh, who were working for the Sierra Club and Friends of the Earth at that time. So that was an interesting aspect uh, of the entire event, the conflagration of uh, the growing sense that society had many more neat doors that needed to be opened uh, to those who were vulnerable in our society. This was the growth of the labor movement in California um, for the farm workers um, and to expand women's rights and visibility um, um, in, in this field was was all happening at the same time. Amazing. I'm really glad you were given, obviously, that platform and that this not only gave more attention to our environmental needs, but obviously others as well. Yeah, it's interesting to note how, like, when you were um, sort of a young adult, the same age that we are now, you were being put in these really high-profile positions, and it just goes to show how important it is that young people stay at the front and the head of these movements. There's so much power behind them. So I was going to ask you um, as well about your involvement in the Clean Air Act and your participation in that as well. Um, Yes. After Earth Day, um, let me back up a little bit. Some of the interesting folks who supported Earth Day, who gave us seed money, who uh, helped to provide us with the technology, the mimeograph machines, the printing press, uh, were the labor unions. Um, And Walter Ruther visited us at our office. And the United Auto Workers were a strong proponent of uh, cleaning up the automobile emissions. They understood how important that was to protect their jobs. 
that we couldn't just keep uh, fighting um, any law that intended to hamper uh, air pollution out the tailpipe of automobiles. Mm -hmm. So very progressive labor union folks um, participated in um, Earth Day. And afterwards, the UAW funded a national conference at uh, their uh, Black River Educational uh, Resort, Black Lake, excuse me, in upstate Michigan. And we had maybe 50 to 100 activists around the country who had helped do Earth Day events in their communities to talk about next steps. And the key next step was to focus on Congress and get uh, good clean air and clean water legislation adopted because the states acting alone could not do it. They were being blackmailed by any industry who would threaten to leave them if they had strict standards in their state. So I helped organize a coalition of uh, uh, environmental organizations, public interest organizations, and uh, labor unions, including UAW and the Steelworkers, uh, to fight for the most strict Clean Air Act that we could. And we, because... Uh, we now understood the laws and what the needs were. We had a lot of input, by the way, from Ralph Nader's organizations who had done a lot of research in this area. We went up to the Hill with an agenda and we attended every hearing, walked into every meeting, uh, demanded to be at the table, did a lot of press, uh, had a lot of attention, and uh, Senator Ed Muskie, uh, blessed be his name, was uh, very strong in uh, making sure that the final product was a good one. And we did. We got an excellent Clean Air Act out of it. We replicated it that two years later with the Clean Water Act. That's wonderful. It's it's really interesting in my per- like our personal experience here um, in New York how you know, we've seen environmentalism as a whole sort of go in and out of, you know, trendiness and whether it gets more or less press at any given moment. Um, and it's really goes, it's really shown us and taught us how important it is to constantly keep that work alive and keep the, um, like you were saying, keep the press going and forcibly, you know, incorporate yourselves into that work. I think that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's refreshing also as a young person to know that like you did by organizing people and making sure you were at all these meetings and really, really brought forward your presence that if we do the same, that our voices can also be heard in that grand of a scale as well. And it's a lot harder for you now. I'll be blunt. Um, At that time, we had the only list of environmentalists, you know, the Sierra Club, the Earth Day organization. I mean, we had the list of people who would get on the phone, talk to their congressperson, mm-hmm. um, and and write the letter, and talk to the local press and get them to write a story about it. Now, information is so fragmented, and there are so many uh, ways in which so-called information flows that uh, I think a lot of people feel so inundated with the text messages, uh, the Facebook postings, the Mm -hmm. emails that pour into their box, um, you know, their TikTok uh, account (laughs) or whatever it is, it's too much. And it's very hard to focus on on anything that's um, like top tier important as opposed to what I feel like doing tonight because I have five minutes, you know what I'm saying? Of course, (laughs) yeah. I 
completely agree. I think having such an overload of information is very overwhelming. I think there are parts to it that are beneficial. Like I've seen some TikTok videos of people showing people how you can call your congressman, call this person, and advocate for what you want to be heard or, or complain about problems and make sure your voice is being heard and that they take action towards those issues. Um, but I definitely agree that it's not as it's not as clear as it was before. I don't think people know about these gateways. And I mean, even like right now, I think they're only open for another month, but we have like the Climate Museum that's in Soho and they have um, resources for sending postcards um, to people within our government to kind of express your opinions on climate change and your concerns. Um, but I totally agree that the overload of information that we're currently given makes it a little overwhelming and harder to find those sources. Um, well, unless you do the proper research, obviously. Um, well, that's right. And the issues are more complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, we handled a lot of the easy stuff uh, in the 1970s and early 80s uh, with respect to cleaning up rivers, uh, cleaning up air. I just don't think young people today understand what tremendous environmental progress has been achieved here. Mm -hmm. um, and in, uh, many of the issues now are far more invisible and nothing is more difficult to handle in that regard than this so-called climate change uh, agenda, which is just very difficult to get people to see what they need to do differently in their own lives, as opposed to writing a letter to their congressman saying, adopt this strict law. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it's much more difficult. You have a much more difficult task um, that I'm very sympathetic to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, I agree as well. And just in terms of like, when we think of the younger generations and all that we were saying in terms of like who we can talk to and the gateways and how we reach certain conclusions, you know, it's it's always been interesting too to see um, what impact these have, you know, with given the increase in technology and the ability, the, the capabilities that people have have also sort of rerouted how politics itself regarding environmentalism even really works. For sure. So we also want to know, do you have a specific memory or moment that stands out to you as the most impactful from your career? Oh, I would definitely say that um, the, the coalition that was created and that uh, got its legs as a result of the Earth Day um, and, and, and union-oriented uh, involvement um, certainly was um, a key moment um, that I think it can legitimately be held to have had a crucial, if not the most crucial role in, in the ability to come forward and develop these early clean air and clean water acts. Um, that the industry uh, was um, on the defensive um, the uh, organization of Earth Day provided us with uh, contacts all across the country um, and the ability to um, have press pay attention to our agenda and promote it. Um, 
allowed Muskie to throw his weight around appropriately within the Senate and House uh, to get the work done. Um, it was a moment in time that fortunately we took advantage of. And looking back on it, we were naively not aware of how important that timing was. But mm-hmm. looking back, I can say that that was, that was crucial, absolutely crucial. Wow, that's so interesting to hear you say that, you know, just it makes so much sense when you look back in the what was available resource wise that you didn't even know how how important and necessary all the work does. And we're so appreciative that all of this happened and that those people fought for what we have now. And that is such a motivator for us to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree as well. It's not like, obviously, like you said, you were naive in the moment and then realized obviously it it snowballed um, into some major, major impacts, which we are very grateful for. But it's it's also uh, an inspiring kind of idea to think that no small act should be considered small. Right. And of course, I'm, I'm of the, you know, I'm a politics person. I'm a policy person. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to I say, you're mailing postcards to say what? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you understand what the issue is of the moment? Um, what value will this communication have to achieve your agenda? So it's not just voices. It's voices directed at the right time with the right message and and, and with, to the right people. Um, and that's a skill um, uh, that... Uh, um, I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of the major environmental organizations have lost track of. In in what way? Like, is there any example that makes you think of that specifically? Well, yes. I mean, the my the it, the work that I do professionally now has been directed to public utility regulation for 35, 40 years. Um, I was on the staff of the main public utilities commission and I've operated my own consulting business. I work for consumers all across the country, national, local, public advocates, um, state officials, whatever. And, and, and I think that many of the large environmental organizations have lost track of the um, impact of their agenda on uh, folks who are struggling to make sure they can have electricity and gas in their home mm-hmm. and and home heating and cooling uh, uh, without struggling uh, and paying uh, for medication um, in order to pay this uh, these utility bills. And there's been a sense from many of these organizations that it doesn't matter what it costs, climate change is too important. We don't really look at the cheapest way to solve our problem. We just pile on with anything we can get adopted, more subsidies, more, more ratepayer increases, um, and not really thinking carefully about how to create a, a, a least cost efficient approach to what is a very real issue. That's yeah. not the problem in my mind is understanding that the issue is not real. It's real, all right. What do, how, how can we coordinate ourselves so that just sending a postcard to somebody, do something about climate change, 
is frankly not very helpful um, or useful. Um, and uh, thinking through what it is we do, how we do it, and who's paying the price for this agenda that you're proposing mm -hmm. is what I find lacking uh, too often in this debate. Yeah, I mean, I would have to agree. Sometimes there is definitely an overload of information and it can be extremely difficult to kind of make a connection and how can we connect the cause and what we're rooting for to tangible action that is seen. And I think there's a lot of disagreement currently going on within the environmental community. Um, and I feel like in terms of public policy, a lot of people tend to to want to adapt to the problem rather than mitigate the issue that's causing it in the first place. Sure, I'll give you a good example. Um, uh, electricity rates are typically uh, fixed or flat. In other words, we don't typically pay for electricity based on the wholesale price the hour we need to use it, do we? I mean, we have, we have rate in most states and in most places, we have rates that are the same mm -hmm. throughout the day, throughout the month. So one of the big environmental, uh, a lot of these environmental organizations go up to the state legislature and say, we need to send a price signal. We need to tell people not to use electricity and cut down those fossil fuel uh, emissions and uh, get, you know, use power at non-peak hours and impose time of use rates. Um, so as a consumer advocate, I'm saying, what? <laughs> no, 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 no. You're telling some older person living in their home to turn their heat down or, or suffer with lack of air conditioning so they don't have to pay 40 cents a kilowatt hour uh, to get essential energy needs met. So that's the kind of thinking that I run up against way too often, um, unfortunately. Another really cool issue is who should pay for EV charging and who should pay to get more EVs on the road? Ratepayers? or maybe progressive taxes, um, uh, like the Biden agenda is clearly trying to use more federal money, raise through more progressive tax mechanisms to support the climate change agenda. But we have people running around Maine who want ratepayers in, in our electric world to help uh, subsidize EVs and EV chargers. Um, and and that's, that's the kind of debate I'm faced with uh, all too often in, in the current climate. So kind of in that same vein, um, I'm wondering what would you consider to be the most complex issue in the environmental movement as of right now? I think a lot of academics and students involved in the work that you're doing simply don't know enough about uh, how rates are set. Mm -hmm. um, who pays for basic electricity? Um, uh, the fact that it's the most regressive system we've got. Um, the lower your income, more of your household income you have to pay for vital electricity services. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're uh, upper income, you don't care because it's like 3% of your annual income. Yeah. But if you you know, lower income folks are paying 10, 15, 20% of their income just to afford their basic needs of electricity, let alone all the other things they have going on. So that kind of knowledge uh, about how we pay for this agenda and how we have a debate about the 
least cost way to achieve our agenda is my big frustration um, with a lot of the uh, debate and the environmental community at, at this time. Yeah, I mean, I think that luckily enough, we do have amazing professors here, but I do wish that we also had some some subjects more like super centrally focused around those kind of subjects. I do think I agree that it would be extremely beneficial. Yeah, it's real difficult. Um, you know, MIT published a report, you know, this this idea of paying a carbon tax and setting rates based on your ability to pay and all kinds of stuff that just, it's just pie in the sky proposals that don't reflect the real world of utility regulation, mm -hmm. which unfortunately or not, depending on your point of view, is highly state regulatory dependent. Um, and uh, which many people point to as a problem, and I, I fully understand that. We, it's very hard to have a national solution when the West Virginia Public Service Commission can adopt rates that are designed to subsidize coal plants. <laughs> and, and the state of Maine puts ratepayer money into helping people use more electricity with heat pumps um, so, uh, it, you know, it's a kind of a crazy world, um, but I would really uh, recommend uh, your club take a look at how can we find out more about who's paying for this agenda and, and where are the levers to have an input to make that more progressive. So I guess in the follow-up to that, do you would you propose in a way to address that, um, would you propose further subsidize, subsidizing the energy, like reworking the way that the energy plants are currently being run? Or would you recommend it go further into like a more federally opposed, imposed, sorry, um, like what we were saying with the imposed tax or subsidies? Do you see a potential solution to this? Well, part of it is uh, to throw more federal money at it. And uh, this current administration has figured that out and is trying to do that. Um, but it's going to the states to decide how they want to use this money. Mm -hmm. um, and there's going to be a big difference between what the West Virginia does with that money and what Maine does. And uh, the climate change doesn't care. You know, they don't care right. about climate change operates um, in a in a closed loop, uh, you know, biological system. It doesn't honor state, <laughs> state, uh, uh, or even national boundaries. Of course. So <laughs> it, it's, it's a really hard thing to do, um, to, to come up with, uh, ideas and i don't have them to be blunt it's hard to come up with ideas to quote solve that problem so i think incrementally what can we do to move us in the right direction um folks like you and pace uh, university and all the schools that are setting up these climate change and s sustainability programs they need to learn more about the issues that i'm talking about they need to learn more about utility regulation, the distribution of income, who pays, mm -hmm. and how we can make sure people have affordable energy and achieve our climate agenda. Mm -hmm. And I think there are things we can do that would do both of those things. I mean, I think I completely agree. I think the only way that it's going to work is if we meet in the middle in this way. Nobody is going to support well, not, I shouldn't say nobody, but a majority of people will look at something that's going to be 
more expensive and they're not going to want to support it. So I definitely think that the major solution would be to to meet in the middle and find a combined solution. Right. And I look at the environmental community as particularly, and these organizations as particularly capable Mm -hmm. of raising these issues. Instead, too often, they jump off the same cliff um, as the solar lobby here in Maine did. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have a huge subsidy being paid for all these small solar farms that is going to increase rates for everybody in the state next year by $150 million. I mean, it's going to be a disaster. And uh, some people saw it coming. Um, I think the environmental community needs to bring more to the table rather than solar at any cost. Um, And that's what happened here. Um, So I hold them responsible because private industry by itself could not have made that happen. So on a more personal level, um, what are your current passion subjects or passion projects and has this changed over time? Well, in the sense that I have devoted my career in my most recent uh, uh, 40 years um, at um, an area that I have described as uh, relating to affordability and utility-related rates Mm -hmm. and energy policies um, uh, generally. Um, So that's my major focus. And because I know so much (laughs) about (laughs) the environmental movement and what we did, and I look at where it's headed, um, I get, you know, I get pretty frustrated um, Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the lack of concern for affordability and the who pays question. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I've been focusing on. I do a lot of work with AARP here in Maine uh, on issues at the state level on those matters. Um, and uh, I love what I do, um, and it's 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 pretty frustrating um, uh, to uh, try to uh, have a debate about what we do for climate change without being accused of denying climate change. So. No, it's a very understandably frustrating um, yes. thing to yes. have to deal with. <laughs> That's for sure. But um, I still enjoy it, um, and uh, that's that's what I do, um, and uh, that's what I like to urge you to learn more about as you get going on, on very important issues. It will be your, your life's work, um, uh, and uh, uh, if you learn a little bit about what we did and how we did it, maybe it will help you in your uh, decisions about how you uh, achieve your agenda uh, over the next 10, 15 years. No, of course. Yeah, so you mentioned um, that you worked as a consultant. Um, I'm just wondering, do you find that throughout your career it's been easier when you've honed in on very specific subjects, like when you were working on the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, or do you find that you actually have more room to grow and sort of see all of the different connections that environmentalism has to different um, like agendas, I should say, um, in your work? What do you think has more of an effective outcome? Oh, I, I've, I've learned a lot um, in my uh, career and over time. The naivete, um, uh, as all young people 
naturally have and need <laughs> to have in order to feel the energy and get going with uh, a project. Uh, you have to believe you can make a difference. Um, but um, as, as, as I have grown older, I've learned a lot more about how complicated the problems are uh, to solve. Mm -hmm. We can stop a factory from issuing pollution. We did that. Um, to um, tell 100 or 200 million Americans whose entire culture has been built around the ability of highways and cars and subdivisions with large lots and um, income um, expectations that would allow you to have the second car, to have the larger lot, uh, to do, uh, you know, to fly in an airplane and have a vacation in Venice, Italy. I mean, all those things are, uh, are not going to go away mm -hmm. with, um, uh, uh, you know, in any short term. Um, and and trying to turn that engine around um, and have the United States think of itself as a sustainable country is going to uh, require a tremendous amount of uh, work. And I, I'm frankly pessimistic about it, mm -hmm. um, to be blunt. Um, there's just too much built into this culture that allows you to think that making it allows you to spend more, use more, uh, build more, and have more. Um, mm -hmm. And um, that's going to be a really hard... So finding the chinks that you can make a difference um, with regard to that um, and showing people how they actually could save money if they had more renewables in the system um, and without subsidizing them to the point of unaffordability uh, would be a good thing to start doing. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And I will say one of the kind of benefits that I think we've both received in our education of environmental studies has been seeing how things that have happened in the past and the history behind certain decisions that were made and how that affected what has happened for the next for the next 50 years and 100 years. And even in terms of what you were mentioning about um, like public policy and city planning and how so many factors go into these decisions. But at the end of the day, um, you know, asking ourselves, like, who is really holding the power here? It's not always who we maybe think is. So in regards to um, sort of like your personal motivations um, and staying in this field for as long as you have, um, I'm wondering who have been some of your major inspirations throughout your life? Uh, that's interesting. Well, I would definitely say um, uh, Walter Ruther, uh, Senator Ed Muskie. I had a wonderful professor in law school um, uh, that I think very highly of who opened my eyes to how the law is a reflection of our changing idea about, about risk mm -hmm. and who pays. Um, and uh, uh, that is... That's a really interesting topic because um, in the old days, you didn't have many rights if the railroad uh, um, spewed out um, uh, uh, embers into your uh, field that caused a fire and killed your cattle. Mm -hmm. But the changing law gradually, 
ultimately resulted in the railroad having to pay for that and being responsible for that. And that's a cultural change. Um, and that's what's happening here. It's just happening really slowly. <laughs> I guess this is what I'm saying. So uh, there are people like that who've given me food for thought over the years, for sure. Um, and uh, I have a great, uh, a, a great admiration of folks who've uh, led the way, as it were. You ought to look up a woman named Congresswoman Bella Abzug from New York and look at her career and... Uh, you know, I used to just uh, love uh, watching her perform on the stage, as it were, when I was your age and she was in Congress. So. That's amazing. It's it's always such a wonderful thing to ask people um, that are more experienced in the field, you know, who they had to look up to, um, because I feel like we have so many great mentors nowadays, but we also are supposed to sort of keep everybody in line in our minds and not ever put anyone up on too high of a pedestal. We're always supposed to be pushing people to do more, and I really appreciate that in your response. <laughs> Thank you. So kind of also within the same field of questioning, what keeps you motivated to continue advocacy in a time where it can feel so difficult to do so? We're so referring, it's a seems like a pretty negative field so far. It's It's hard for us sometimes in classes when we're hearing so much negative news to still feel positive about our careers in the future? Well, for one thing, I've lived long enough to see what used to be and compare it to now, and you haven't had that privilege. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't seen the progress that I have seen or that people my age have seen. So go back and learn about what was going on in the 60s and 70s, what changes were made, and take a look at the improved air quality and water quality that we currently have in this country mm-hmm. um, compared to what was. And you, once you understand that progress and the fact that it maybe took a decade or more, but it happened, um, you can uh, focus on what will it take to get blank more renewables into our system and still have affordable rates? Mm -hmm. Uh, What kind of actions could be taken to balance those two things and make sure that the quality of life that we've come to expect in our culture as the United States of America is not got to be viewed as uh, a dereliction of duty Um, if we uh, continue to try to enjoy uh, the fruits of our labors. Um, You can't destroy the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. That ain't going to (laughs) happen. So, you know, people who talk like that are just turnoffs. I mean, nobody's going to listen to that. Um, So we need to focus on what can we do with the levers we have Mm -hmm. and what can we expect uh, over the next 10 years? And it is happening. The growth in renewables is dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we will get more EVs on the road. It just isn't probably going to happen as quick as people expect. That's all. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a wonderful point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's so correct in what you were saying that it's important to celebrate the things that have occurred, what has happened, and can use those and say like these are the pathways that we took to get there how do we sort of take that and also use it for things that we want to accomplish now and I think that what's so interesting about you know modernity and 
working in environmentalism in 2023 is the fact that what you're talking about right now and making everything accessible. I mean, during the time in your height of your career, like um, you mentioned sort of how like the you you have yourself watched the middle class, you know, rise and fall. And I think it's interesting whenever we're in our personal classes, how we're forced to look at how this would affect, you know, marginalized communities, underpoverished communities and essentially everyone and to really make the environmental movement affect everyone in a positive way. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Absolutely. Which is definitely a good thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. So on the note of that, um, I know that whenever we sort of bring up environmentalism nowadays, for a plethora of reasons, and it's so unfortunate, it seems to be a very politicized movement in the sense that, you know, whenever you bring up the fact that you are an environmentalist, you're an activist, it sort of kind of labels you as one thing. And I was wondering if you had any insight on how to sort of drop that narrative and just make it an every, a community issue rather than, you know, who your political affiliation is. Well, that's a problem that goes way beyond um the environmental problem, isn't it? I mean, we have have developed a sickness, uh, for sure, uh, in our ability to talk to each other. And um, in some states and areas, um, everybody knows what you're talking about when we talk about climate change and we can have these rational discussions about what we do and what it will cost and, and how we can go about it. Um, at, but there's a whole group of people that are now left behind with the complete destruction of the manufacturing and middle class jobs um, that permeated our, com- our our economy after World War II. Mm-hmm. It's gone. And if anything you should study, you should look carefully at what happened, how that happened, and what the situation is for those um, and why they're so angry. Mm -hmm. They are furious and they don't understand it. And they, as human beings, we look to find a they who are the source of our anger and problem. This is is not unique to America. This is a human thing. We all grew up in our own little cave. And when things went bad, we tried to point the finger at, you know, the witch who caused that uh, plague. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very basic, unfortunately, evolutionary trait. Um, and uh, that is that issue is 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 one that requires a dialogue. Uh, that is does not start out talking about climate change. It talks about basic economic growth and development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Biden's got it. He understands this. That's why he keeps running over to Wisconsin and Minnesota to talk about the new infrastructure factory that his uh, program has uh, has uh, stimulated and why we need to build more things in this country. Um, and if, he, if there's any way to bring this country together, we've got to take a look at the at the vast swath of geographic area in this country that has turned nasty red um, and figure out why that happened and uh, address it. Um, so until we solve that, we aren't going to get a consensus about anything else, uh, I think. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a sort of, I think, intrinsic 
othering that humans do to one another in order to reduce our own personal guilt Mm -hmm. now that we've sort of seen more of the effects of climate change play out. I mean, even down to sort of, you know, I'll see like companies telling me I just have to recycle more and that can be very frustrating at times. Um, Sure. Where's the money? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So our next question is, do you have any book recommendations? And this can be environmental or non-environmental, maybe a person who's in this career or expires, aspires to expand their knowledge on environmentalism, or simply if you have a book that you just recommend for young people um, that they should read as they get older and experience the world. There is an individual that I haven't mentioned in our talk today <laughs> named uh, Jim, James Gustav Speth. Uh, his name is Gus Speth. He was uh, uh, a Yale graduate. He was one of the founders of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Okay. Um, I actually worked for him in the first couple of years of their existence in D.C. Oh, wow. Um, in 1972 for a year before my husband and I moved to Maine. Um, and he wrote a book that I thought was really good. Um, Let me just figure this out. The Bridge at the Edge of the World is the name of his book that I think would be fun for a recommendation. Perfect. I think I've actually heard of that before and I feel like it's on my list. (laughs) Yeah. Capitalism, the environment and crossing from crisis to sustainability. Perfect. Um, and then what I would suggest is learn more about Earth Day um, mm-hmm. and what happened and how it happened. There are things you would do differently, I have no doubt. Um, but uh, there is a book uh, by a professor in, um, in Pittsburgh who wrote a really good, anal- I mean, it's an academic work. He interviewed all of us. He interviewed and looked at the entire history. Um, uh, and uh, the author think? is Adam Rome, R-O-M-E, and it's called The Genius of Earth Day. Uh-huh. And he actually, toward the end of the book, starts raising the issue that I talked to you about. Uh-huh. What is the modern environmental movement doing um, that might raise some concerns about the ability of this kind of work to continue? And uh, he has he had the same concerns that I've raised with you, and I raised them with him <laughs> at the time uh, when he wrote this book just a couple years ago. No, oh, perfect. Thank you so much for those recommendations. I'll definitely yeah. be putting them on my list. <laughs> yeah. Good. So um, the last question I'd like to ask you today is, um, is there anything that you're sort of working on right now or anything, any movements or organizations that you'd like to share with us? Well, uh, my work right now is pretty oriented to uh, Maine um, and the agenda that we're facing with here and working on keeping um, energy prices um, uh, affordable. And uh, so I I don't have, uh, I don't think I have something that would translate um, uh, beyond uh, our local um, issues here. Um, But um, uh, one that um, I guess I could recommend is that you take a look at um, 
the um, growing sense that we need more transmission mm-hmm. to bring um, the renewables um, into where the power need is. Um, and uh, a classic story of uh, the problem here is a transmission line that would go from uh, Hydro-Quebec in Ontario uh, to bring hydro um, down the line mm-hmm. through Maine and into Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a lot bigger than Maine. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so, Mass- yes. <laughs> Massachusetts signed a contract to pay 100% of the cost of this transmission line and to buy this power from Hydro-Quebec in Canada to displace natural gas power, which wow. is driving up high prices mm-hmm. in the New England area. Who are the primary opponents? The environmental community. Hmm. It's been one of the saddest stories of my professional life to watch the opposition to this power line to bring cleaner, maybe not perfect, nothing's perfect, to bring cleaner energy into New England, um, 100% paid for by Massachusetts uh, ratepayers in a contract approved by every agency that's looked at it, state, federal, Maine, Massachusetts, but no, the environmental community got it on the ballot and they have ripped up people uh, to the point of frenzy, thinking that we are destroying the timber and the streams and the birds of our forest lands mm. uh, to uh, bring uh, not very clean hydro stuff uh, in, into our... And you know who funded the opposition that, that led to the uh, referendum? The natural gas companies. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> this this story—you can't write this story oh and have people believe what happened here uh, on this yeah. incredible thing. So that's the kind of stuff I'm dealing with here all the time, and uh, 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 you know, I just—it's it, a really good case study. It would be a wonderful case study for somebody to take a look at. Uh, as to the push and pull of who's doing what to whom uh, on the climate change agenda Mm -hmm. in this country. (laughs) That is crazy. And honestly, yeah, very surprising to me that they would oppose that. But I mean, it's also not surprising that natural gas companies are are funding the opposition. Of course. (laughs) Their profits were at stake. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's of course, we expected them to fund it. Well, yeah, I mean, I yeah, that, that's no surprise, but... <laughs> but the reason Maine people bought into the opposition is because the white hat environmental community joined ranks in opposition to this transmission line. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we so appreciate you highlighting that for us. Well, we have so many things now to look into, so thank you. Yeah, Barbara, it, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to meet with us. It was an honor to meet you and have the opportunity to learn about your life and learn from everything you have to say. Um, before we end the podcast, is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, what I'd like to say, Brooklyn and uh, Gabby, is how much I appreciated uh, you chatting with me and um, how much I appreciated the ability to share some real-world experiences that um, – uh, while may make things a bit more complicated than we all thought, um, do provide a path forward 
um, that uh, by looking back, we can uh, get some lessons learned and take it forward and make some real change. And uh, you folks are the ones who will do it, I am convinced. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's so nice of you. Again, it was constantly like we're constantly trying to keep our horizons broad and learn more always. And you had so much to share and really appreciate it. It was amazing to hear from you. I, I really, really appreciate it. What an honor. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Take care, all. You Thank too. You. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Stay tuned for more episode releases, and if you want to get involved more in our organization, feel free to follow us on our Instagram, PSI underscore Pace, as well as joining our club on Sutter Sync. We hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did, and we'll see you all very soon. Bye.